Welcome to the Persistence You podcast with Lisbeth, and that's you as in university. But we're much more of a community here. I'm your host, Lisbeth Meredith, author, speaker, and online teacher. Each week, I'll be delivering stories from amazing survivors and strivers, all threaded together with a dose of persistence. So glad you're listening. I never grow tired of a story about a person finding their true identity, and especially when it comes to getting to know their family of origin. So this week's podcast is such a treat. I enjoyed it so much. Now, if you're enjoying Persistence You with Elizabeth and you've wanted to know how to support me, you're welcome to support the podcast for a few dollars every month or a one sort of a tip. Uh, you could support me by donating to Patreon and help covering some of the costs or a few dollars one time ever on Buy Me a Coffee. I put both of those links on my website. So feel free and don't feel pressured. Thanks so much for asking. Welcome, persisters and brothers, to another episode of Persistence You with Lisbeth. And thanks so much for being here today. I am honored to have Dr. Naima with me today. She is perched in Atlanta, at least for today, as we're recording. And she's done some wonderful work. She wrote a book called Raised as a Lie. She's a podcaster, Elevate Now. Uh, is the name of her podcast, and she is a doctor of chiropractic. But the story of persistence that she has to share, I'm going to let her tell that. And thank you so much for being here, Dr. Naima. I am super excited to have this conversation, Lisbeth. This is an honor. Thank you. Oh, I am so excited. When I heard what your book was about, I I have a, a different but similar story in some ways that, you know, I found my own father through an attorney friend when I was 20 and learned so many things that backfilled my life and kind of the puzzle pieces started clicking together. It's a very unique experience when you get to know people later in life who you thought you were might be a little bit different. So can you tell us about your story? I, um, of course I'm happy to, but now I'm super curious. I, I, um, I, I have to ask, how did that feel at at 20 because that wasn't my experience right. right so i'm i'm curious i remember being super immature at 20 i you know what i'm sure i was super immature at 20 and still am at 57 but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i had a sense of wholeness then in some ways so i knew and i was lucky that my mom started forecasting that, oh, things are different than maybe what you realized, or you have a dad out there. So she planted those seeds earlier than 20. So by the time I met my father, I was really so excited to meet him, overwhelmed that I had so much family and that there was a ton of siblings I'd never even heard about. Um, But it was exciting. And then I started unpacking some lies, you know, that had sort of defined my life earlier on. How about you? What was it like for you? Do tell. I love that you said that defined your life because that's, I think, where family secrets and denials, um, ultimately what you realize is that they deposit these 
very sort of deep rooted meanings that you as a child have attached to your identity, to your worthiness, to how you show up in the world. And it's sometimes so altering when you find out that some of those things are absolutely false. And for me, it was then trying to like figure that back, figure that out. Like I had to backtrack and really excavate um, some things and some meanings that I had attached to my life. But I did that when I was a much older person. I didn't decide to write and tell the story until last year when I was 49. And while I think that when I found out at 18 that who I thought and was told was my father um, was in fact not. And so knowing that information sort of sent me reeling, but not enough because that's at 18. And so not enough for me to, to truly sort of like investigate what are the meanings that I have associated with myself? Because I think what I did at the time was that I perpetuated my own family's denial. What I said to myself is, well, this is your new truth and you get this opportunity to sort of identify now as this black woman for which that I a hundred percent dove into, but what I did not do, and that really truly resurfaced as um, a much older adult was to relay a foundation of how I saw myself in the world and what people I think externally believe is that if you are a fairly attractive human in the world, that somehow you've got life a little bit easier. And while I believe that there is such a thing as pretty power, externally, your world worldly worthiness doesn't come from. Um, it is 100% an inside job. And I, I was having a really tough time and I had to go back and really figure out who was the one that first told me that I was unlovable and that I w- did not fit and that I was ugly. And, and, and I had an older sister. Um, she's seven years, my senior and my earliest memories are of her just tormenting me with just bullying. And she had her own challenges and, but I didn't know that at the time I just idolized her and I wanted to be just like her. And I think when you are such a young person and people are saying such nasty things to you, um, and I would not have said at the time, oh, that's, she's just being mean and nasty. What she said was true. I didn't look like anybody and that my skin was brown. We lived on a farm. So anytime something got dirty on the farm, it was brown. And so when she would say my skin was dirty and um, oh, wow. I couldn't refute it, I didn't have a language around it. And And then I think that later on, when my mom finally reveals the truth, what I 
did not do at that time. And what I alluded to earlier is to go back and truly do the emotional, psychological work that would have needed to, to have been done to say that I I am worthy and this is the reason all of those things, um, those emotions were coming up. And, you know, now I, I can sort of be free of them. And I just didn't do that, um, that work. And this is what I believe truly is that childhood traumas don't just stay, uh, limited to your childhood. They will creep up and you will make decisions as an adult and subconsciously that you're not even aware of, um, based off of some attachments to some ideas that weren't even yours to begin with, right? Right. And you don't even know that they're there informing your decisions. Yes. What is the identity that you grew up with? As a little girl, what kind of family did you have? And how did you find out about your parentage, you know, your, your true father? Yes. Yeah. So my family is white. I grew up in all white um, family neighborhoods, schools, and I was told that I too was white. My brother's father, uh, my mom got married and, and my younger brother and I did not find out until much later that um, he was the one that was on my birth certificate, but that was not true. And he was, um, he's deceased now, blonde hair, blue eyed. And my mom is a very fair, um, was a very fair skinned Italian woman. And she had dark hair, but it was straight. And um, she had green eyes. My older sister was blonde hair, blue eyes. And my cousins all had, you know, blonde hair, light, um, brown hair, straight hair. So there was nobody that had my brown skin, nobody that had my wild, curly, unruly hair. And, <laughs> um, and it was, it was an interesting experience to, to have growing up and looking around and nobody looked like me. And, um, anytime I brought that question up, which really wasn't until, I was a bit older. I think uh, seven was the first time that I asked. And um, the conversation was completely stilted. It was just like, no, where Jim's your father. And then I remember um, asking again when I was, I think I was in middle school and the same lie was retold. And I think oftentimes, you know, what what I imagine that people think is looking at me now and thinking, well, how did you not know? Of course you would have had to have known. This is what I have concluded. If you do not have a context as a child for, um, for culturally difference differences, then you do not have language that supports an idea or a question in your mind. I didn't go grow up around black people. I did not have a a sense of what that actually meant and I believe that we trust our parents. That's their job is to protect and caretake us. And that's what happened. I trusted my mother and um, what I later found out, and it really truly was trying to figure out 
when I decided to tell this story and write the book, really trying to go back because my mother has been deceased for a decade. And so you have to sort of interview other people. And ultimately the conclusion that I came to was that my mother was doing the best that she could with what she knew and she had at the time. It was 1970, 71. This was not a time, certainly not in, you know, the nation at large, but her family specific, um, where there were a lot of very real racist tendencies and beliefs and ideologies. And I believe that my mom was trying her very best to protect me. And so she lied all of the years. And my family, of course, to look at me, I didn't look like anybody. Nobody um, wanted to have that conversation. We just all sort of stayed in denial about the big, huge elephant that's in the middle of the room Mm -hmm. until it no longer could be. And and she was forced at that point um, to truly sort of reckon with holy cow, I got to tell this woman, this young lady, my daughter, I have to tell um, her the truth to keep her safe. Because at that point, we had moved to this really small town in Arizona, and there was no diversity. And the high school, I was a senior in high school, and three of the high school boys um, had cornered me in the cafeteria, and they were threatening to take me out to that when you live in a desert, you know, the kids go really far out. Um, and they built these bonfires. Now, granted, I said the desert, but there's cities in the desert. We lived in a very small town. Um, so there was no city, and there was nothing for these kids to do. And so they go out into the sand dunes and build these big bonfires and drink and do whatever stupid things that high school students do. Right. And, um, and so I knew about it. I was never invited, but I knew about the location and they were threatening to take me out there and lynch me, but I didn't know what lynching meant. Oh, um, wow. So grown up with this complete whitewashed, um, you know, sort of understanding of the world. But I knew enough to know that this was not safe. And I was very afraid. And my sister had moved out by then. I'm now 17, going on 18. And um, I call her because I don't know who else to talk to about this. And I had spent the majority of my life sort of protecting my mother, um, even from myself and my own questions, right? self appointed And I didn't want to have a conversation with her about it because I knew it would upset her based off of my attempts previously. And my sister didn't say anything. She wouldn't answer my questions. And I thought that was odd because she has never been at a loss for words, never missed an opportunity to just say really vile things. Um, And her silence should have told me everything, but it didn't. I just got off of the phone feeling very frustrated. And then before I knew it, I was being summoned into my mother's room. And I remember thinking, damn, Michelle, like, why would she tell her? I told her it was just the one thing that I asked her not to do. And I think that that was the moment that my mother said to herself, I can go on telling this lie or I can protect my daughter at this point. And so she just had to say, the man on your birth certificate is not your man, not your father. And, um, And it, I mean, it cost her a great deal to have that conversation, watching her just ache over not wanting the words to come out of her mouth uh, will be a moment I'll never forget. 
Wow. Did you, did you allow yourself to feel bad for you or were you mostly concerned for her? I threw out the, in the beginning. So, and it's funny how your mind sort of plays these tricks on you. I don't actually know how long we were in her bedroom. It of course felt like an eternity. So my best recollection is that the majority of the conversation was spent with her not saying the thing that she needed to say. And I just, I I wasn't understanding. And so, but I could see my mother, she had this habit of wringing her hands and picking the sides of um, her thumbs sort of absently. Um, And I was watching her do all of that. And this woman was so strong my whole life. And so I could not fathom why she was having such a hard time having this conversation. And it wasn't until the very end where she says, your your grandfather would have never understood, not with a black man. And then it was one of those movie moments where the camera pans around you in like this super slow motion and everything sort of falters and then stutters. And then it's a little bit like when your internet's like freezing, right? And <laughs> I don't know what to do. And I'm trying to fix my face so that it's not showing my just utter confusion and and then I remember feeling very afraid. Like, what does this mean? I grew up hearing racist jokes and slurs, and I know the mentality of my family. And what does this mean for me? Does that mean that they're not going to love me the same? Who am I going to talk to about this? Like, who would who would have this conversation with me? And so there was just more questions. And so in the end, I could no longer protect her from my own emotions because I didn't know what to do with the emotions. And, um, and I think that that's what sent me on the journey for the next couple of years is really trying to, you know, put language behind my own emotions. And as I said earlier, I think ultimately what I just did was went into my own denial. I decided to show up as a black woman, right. Um, And fully embraced when I went to the university of Southern California, like I just fully embraced becoming super black. Right. Um, (laughs) How does that, how does that work itself out? Cause you know, a lot of the uh, listeners may not understand that, but give examples, any fun examples. So, and it's so funny because when I was writing this chapter in the book, I was laughing at myself. Like you really went in. So the, to give it a little bit of context, this is 1992. Okay. Um, The Rodney King trial had um, just um, concluded. The four officers were, um, deemed not guilty. The city went up in, you know, um, an absolute uprising and there were fires, you know, everywhere in these burning buildings and the racial tension had been building for such a long time, um, in that city. And, and that was the time that I was entering USC and it was, such a divisive sort of time, but it was also 
this really sort of exciting moment where people were rising up for the injustices that they had been feeling for literally centuries. And I was excited to be coming. Um, I was afraid because we had lived in these, you know, smaller towns and I had never lived in um, a city. And so I, I was certainly afraid. And, and, you know, the University of Southern California is sort of um, dubbed the University of South Central, right? So it's in the middle of the hood. And it looks like they have certainly, you know, the area has been, you know, gentrified and, and, and updated, you know, in the last two decades. But this was not the case, you know, nearly 30 years ago. And, um, and so I... I was, you know, nervous and, and afraid, but I wanted to fully embrace the moment. And so I ended up getting these big dookie braids in my hair, this big ring in my nose, and I wore, <laughs> you know, shirts like, you know, Hippocrates is a is a thief and Columbus, Christopher Columbus is a murderer and um <laughs> joined the new Black Panther party. Um Oh, you, you did know, go all in. All in. Down you retroactively the- reclaimed your identity yes. <laughs> in one month. Yep. Black power. Like I was, I was all in and I had spent, you know, these three semesters just reveling in all things, um, black culture. And, and I became the president of the black student association and really just fully embraced, um, what it meant to be a woman of color. On the other side of the world, where my parents were living in Arizona, um, I I was not, I had not merged my two worlds. And so I really felt this sort of differing, diverging identity. And I kept that up for a number of years because I couldn't figure out how to meld the two. How do you incorporate who you were before with who you know yourself to be now and and that be okay. What did your family, how did your sister respond? This sister who had been a little bit of your nemesis and you wanted to please her earlier in life. Did she come to accept and understand more or? Yeah, that's such a great question. She, as I mentioned earlier, I think that that Michelle really truly struggled with her own issues and certainly as a young child. And, um, you know, she had her own demons, um, to slay. And I don't think that she was able to ultimately. And so the time I was, um, in high school and, um, college, she was well off the rails. She d- she got really heavily involved in drugs and she um she became a teen mom herself and then you know ultimately ended up leaving her kids uh with her um now ex-husband and she wasn't around a lot she'd sort of dip in you know she she come and create a whole bunch of chaos and and at this point it was no longer just targeted at me right? sure and you could see that Yes. And, um, so she wasn't around a whole bunch and then she'd come in and she'd play nice for a little while, but when she could no longer hold up the facade, there'd be some sort of, you know, you know, uh, 
just conflict and then she would sort of disappear again. Um, but as it applied to the rest of my family, my mom was really struggling and having a difficult time, but it wasn't because that that her daughter was identifying as a black woman. It was, we had been close. Now she saw and felt me creating space and, and, um, separation. I needed to figure out who it was that I was in the world. And I needed to do that independently, um, of my family. So I pushed back, um, and really, truly, uh, tried to figure my own self out and how I showed up in, in the world. And so we would, you know, this is obviously a time before pre-cell phones and FaceTime and all those sorts of wonderful conveniences that we have now. And so our conversations would become fewer um, and uh, far between the times that we would connect and she could feel that. And she also, I think, had this sort of moment for herself when she realized that she could not prepare me to be a black woman in the world. She didn't understand um, herself and, you know, she definitely struggled. And so there were, you know, these moments where we'd have these conversations and I'd say, you just don't understand what it means to be white. And you're, you have all this privilege around. She said, I I would say, but the racism is in our language, the, the inferiority that has been, you know, deemed upon an entire race of people to oppress them, to keep them, you know, in this position are the words that we use every day. And so I would say things like, you know, you buy angel food cake as opposed to devil's food cake. And, you know, what's a white lie versus a black lie. And she would just be like, what? Um, (laughs) And so I eventually learned that we just weren't going to have these really sort of in-depth connected conversations, her and I. Um, And so I learned that we could talk about other things and connect on other, um, in other spaces, but race just was not one while she was empathetic. um, And she loved me endlessly. There were things that she knew that she could not relate to. Sure. Sure. That totally makes sense. But you still persevered with your relationship with her, it sounds like. Absolutely, absolutely. And it it took me becoming a mother to truly understand and appreciate her decisions. And right. that's where I was able to give my mom grace. I think that's terrific because she was living in a completely different time yep. and made her decisions based the best she could. But that was a long time for you to have to wait to hear you know, that was a long time. Now, how, as you proceeded in college, how did you get into being in the, to the healing arts, like a doctor of chiropractic? Yeah, I actually um, did not until I was 36, three kids, two dogs, a husband. I 
was had been a stay-at-home mom, uh, is sort of interwoven into needing to pick up jobs here and there when money was not as abundantly flowing. Um, when we decided that we were going to live in LA, I think that we, as young people, I was 23 and my husband was 30. I was 20, going on 24 and he had just turned 30. And we were living in one of the most expensive cities in the country. And I I don't think I realized the impact financially and economically what that meant. And so we lived, you know, very modestly off of very meager earnings that um, he was uh, generating. And so we sort of learned how to be very frugal and figure out, you know, how to live, you know, um, this very sort of modest lifestyle. And, but the time, I think I was I 31 and we had three children and we were doing better, but we were still living in this this country, uh, this country, the city for which that was so expensive. And so while we were doing better, you know, the city was also doing better and was more expensive. And I just felt like we were broke at a higher level, right? (laughs) And I was really frustrated and I wanted more and I wanted more for my family. And I didn't want us to just sort of struggle every month. And, you know, my background was um, in natural childbirth and, and supporting and advocating for women who, like myself, wanted um, home births and to live holistically and naturally. And that was how we were raising our family. And I loved every bit of it. And so I wanted to get my master's uh, in midwifery because I wanted to open my own birthing center. Or that I actually came to that conclusion. I had struggled because, you know, here I was this mom and I had these great kids and this house and this husband and, and I should have been happy, right? I should have been grateful. I should have, you know, felt like all of that was enough. And I say that in a way to, appeal to your listeners in sort of compassion that I wasn't having compassion for myself. I wasn't giving myself grace. I was judging myself so harshly because what I I wasn't feeling was fulfilled. And one morning I woke up and I looked at myself in the bathroom mirror and I wasn't nearly as successful as I thought that I would be. I wasn't as far along as I thought that I would be. And I had to come to that recognition and make peace with the fact that I wanted more and that that ultimately was not the most selfish thing that I could, you know, desire was wanting more for myself because what I believed in my world, it was either you know, I was a mom or that I wanted, you know, to have a career and I just could not put the two worlds. Once again, um, I was at sort of this crossroads where I couldn't bring these two sort of competing um, desires in my life together. And ultimately, I think it was the desire to want to do better financially and economically for our family that I decided I'm going to go ahead and pursue this. And so we, after a few years, we ended up relocating to Atlanta. And I thought that that's um, what I was going 
to do. I was going to go to Emory University and get my master's in midwifery and open this beautiful birthing center. And I had it all planned Mm -hmm. out. And then Emory said no. And I was like, wait, what? What? what?" And like everything sort of turned upside down. Um, And then a chiropractor introduced herself into our lives and at a PTA meeting, no less. And I, I was so sort of surprised by how events rapidly started changing. And it was because of our oldest at the time who was having a health crisis. And when she finally said, like, listen, bring him to my husband and I's practice and let's see if we can help. You've done all of these other things. And I finally was like, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, what, what, what could it hurt? And it worked and his migraines went away and he started healing and getting better. I, I really had to reflect on like the direction that I was going in my own career. And I wanted ultimately to stand in for families and give them back hope and give them back their desires for what they wanted for their health. And it not only just be limited to pregnant women. And I decided to apply and go to chiropractic school. And it's been 14 years and it's probably one of the greatest decisions that I made in my life. And now I get to do the thing that that family, that that couple um, had given back to my family, which is hope. Right. I love that. That is terrific. And what a great way to wake up every day and feel like I can serve people in this way. In fact, I personally, I've never met a miserable chiropractor. Never have. And, uh, you know, uh, often they're the people that take the best care of themselves, even more than my regular general practitioner. Uh, I've always noticed that. So that is really exciting. Now, where can people find out more about Raised as a Lie and about your podcast and other things. Where can people best connect with you, Dr. Naima? I love that. Yes. And please, please, please do, because I love to just have these conversations. Um, so the best place is um, on Instagram, and that's at Dr. Naima Writes. And um and raisedasalie.com, the website is, is a good place to find out all things um, that's happening with the book. That's so exciting. I really appreciate this conversation today and your time. Yes, I am. I'm so glad to have it. This was fun. I really do. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, Tell a friend and go ahead and give us a review. I'll see you next week. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.